I want to encourage you as the kids are heading out to open up your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Hard as it is to believe, we are going to end our time in the letters of Peter today. If you've been with us for a couple of months, we actually started way back in the Gospel of Mark. And we went through the Gospel of Mark together as a community. And part of why we went from there after a brief break in the summer in the Psalms into the letters of Peter, First and Second Peter, is because if you remember, we believe that the Gospel of Mark, we have that because that was Peter's Gospel, really. Peter was recounting his experience with Christ and the rest of the disciples through Mark. And I thought it was appropriate. Uh, I felt God leading us to really look at, years later, how Paul was practically living out, reflecting upon that experience of journey, that journey with Christ. So as I said, we come to the end of that letter, and as we come to the end of Peter's second letter, I want to focus on a statement I made last week. If you were here last week, I made the following statement in the midst of being in this last chapter of Peter's second letter. I said, when we start believing the reality of the other side, that's when we start behaving differently on this side. And you're going to find as Peter offers his final words to us, this is what he wants us to hear and what he wants us to take with us. How to live differently in this chapter of our lives with the assurance that the next part of the story, our story, is still to come. So if you have those Bibles open, and I invite you to keep them open after we even finish reading, we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming. That day will, will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep those Bibles open. But the day of the Lord will come. Despite the rumors and false teachings of others, once again, Peter reassures us, Jesus is coming back. As Peter has previously reminded us, the prophets of old knew it. The apostles have never wavered in their conviction either. And like them, we too must hold on. Remember and believe our story, the world's story, the world's story, our story, is not undetermined. It's not in suspense. It's not up for grabs. Just as every good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, so the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the greatest story ever told, rests upon a certain and definitive 
conclusion. And that is why Peter in this passage at the close of this letter begins by again and again telling us to be ready. To be ready. Now, readiness is about being prepared for a future event. But the thing is, some events, different types of events, demand different kinds of readiness. For some events, being ready means preparing and completing certain tasks. There's work to be done that you can finish, that you have to finish in order to be ready. So for example, think of getting ready for a vacation. Your car or mode of transportation has to be serviced and full of gas. Your clothes, your toiletries, your bags need to be collected and packed. Your route needs to be planned out. Your tickets and passports need to be acquired. Your money, your ID, your travel insurance need to be readied as well. It is only once you complete the pre-trip checklist that you're able to relax on the couch the night before the trip and say, I'm prepared. I'm ready. I'm ready and prepared at least as much as I want to be. Now also, if we think about events like these, you notice that unless you go and undo what's already been done, our readiness level remains the same, right? I mean, after we complete our checklist, after we finish the tasks we set out to do, as we sit on the couch or we go to sleep for the night, we do not become unready, at least not less ready than we were at the start. Once the prep work is done, we just wait. But there are other events where our readiness doesn't look the same as this. And that would be unscheduled or surprise events, events not initiated by us, events we have no control over. In those situations, being ready is much different. For example, if you're not self-employed, if you're not your own boss, think about your, when your supervisor at work returns from lunch at an undisclosed time. What does it take to be ready in this situation? Keeping busy. You need to be sure you know what to do, and then you need to keep doing it, right? Being ready in this context means it's necessary to be vigilant and to keep watch. With these kinds of events, there's no point in which you can say, I'm finished, I've done all I can, I am completely ready for the person in charge to return. You might take a rest break here or there, but on the whole, you must continue working until the moment the whistle blows and the boss tells you to go home. And even to expand it even bigger than that, although we may put in a full day's work, even though there may be tasks that we complete in an eight-hour or 10-hour period, finishing a task only enables us to keep working, right? There's always more work to be done. And so in this sense, our work is never really over. It's never totally finished. Otherwise, I mean, if you think about it, we wouldn't have a job to come back to, right? Because there'd be nothing left to do. What's interesting about these kind of events, if you're with me, is that we can be ready at one point and then stop being ready. As long as you're performing the necessary tasks, you're ready. But as soon as you stop working, you become unready. If you will, imagine back, for some of you, this won't be too far back, for others, you may have to think a little bit. Think about being in a classroom again with a teacher. You're in a classroom with a teacher and you've been paying attention to the instructor because you all are great students, right? You all paid attention in class. 
You're paying attention to the instructor and you've been staying focused and you've been working hard for the duration of the class. But then, before class is over, you get distracted. You start daydreaming. Or in today's world, you suddenly start surfing on the web on your phone or your computer. Suddenly, the teacher calls on you. Otherwise engaged, are you ready to respond? You might have been ready up until that moment, that moment before you started to drift off and got distracted, but are you ready now when you're called on? No, you're not ready. Different type of events lead to different types of readiness. So what type of event, when it comes to the return of Jesus, what type of experience are we getting ready for? According to Peter, the returning Jesus is like a thief, a thief in the night, someone who will always surprise us in his coming, but someone who we would be ill-advised to be caught off guard when he comes. Jesus himself repeatedly emphasized the inevitability of his return while at the same time describing the shock and awe everyone would experience when he came back. Indeed, he spoke of himself not only in the metaphor of a thief, as Peter does here, but he also spoke in the metaphor of being a master of servants, a boss making a scheduled return to the job site, but at an hour unknown to his employees. When it comes to the return of Jesus, what type of experience are we getting ready for? We need to understand what type of event the coming of Jesus is so that we can prepare for it accordingly. Too many people are not prepared to meet Jesus. They're going to be surprised because they've been getting ready for the wrong kind of event. Now, our indication of how ready we are is to examine how we are getting set for what is coming. Ready, set. Peter begins by telling us we need to have the right orientation to Jesus' return, to be ready. But then he goes on and tells us, calls us to get set for what will happen when Jesus returns. Now, being set is adopting a certain posture, right? A certain stance. If you can visualize this, there's a right way, open hands, and a wrong way to catch a ball that's being thrown in us, right? There's a right way to get set to lift something heavy, back straight, knees down, and there's a wrong way to lift something heavy. Being set is about being properly oriented, postured for what will happen next. What are we set for? And what's interesting to me is when I ask this question, I find most believers are set for a frightful nightmare. Many Christians often speak of Jesus' return as if it was a series of natural disasters, literally hell on earth. And, and this idea that doom and gloom are the predominant view, is the predominant view in the church, that that's what we're getting set for, is evidenced by the fact that I find most people outside or apart from the Christian faith, if they know nothing else about Jesus, this is what they've learned from us. It's the last chapter of the story. It's coming. The end is near. And it's a tragic ending. It's going to get ugly. It's going to be awful. Be afraid. Be very afraid. I mean, does anyone else notice the rise in popularity, especially among our youth, and some of our youth are here today, does anyone else notice the rise in popularity of what's called dystopian fiction? Apocalyptic literature? Apocalyptic visions of the future? Nuclear fallout. 
alien invasions, environmental crisis. I heard somebody already say it, zombies. Whatever the trigger is, notice the view of what's coming next is always the same. Humanity is reduced to its base animalistic impulses where morality is suspect and rare. It's a vision across the board of chaos. It's a vision of uncertainty. It's a vision of hopelessness. And my question is, is that an accurate reading of the Bible? Is that the overriding picture Jesus gives to us that Peter paints for us here? Well, if you have those Bibles open, you know, you look at Peter writing, the heavens disappearing in a roar, destruction by fire, the earth and everything in it laid bare. And a cursory reading of what just Peter puts right here would have, us, have to make us go, yeah. But what I would suggest is on the other hand, if we look, look more closely here in Peter, if we look more closely in the Gospels where Jesus talks, or even in the book of Revelation, which I promise you at some point we will go through, if we look more closely at John's visions, I think what we'll discover is we're putting the emphasis, we're putting the focus of the picture, if you will, in the wrong place. Peter refers to the coming of Jesus as the day of the Lord. If you've read the Bible at all, You've come across this phrase, this image before. It's, well, you find it like 19 times in the Old Testament, from prophets raging from Isaiah all the way to Zechariah. You'll find it in the Gospels. You'll find it in the New Testament letters as well. Now, in brief, what the day, what's known as the day of the Lord involves God's dramatic and miraculous intervention one last time in human history. And on the surface, it looks to be really bad. The greatest distress the world has ever known. But ultimately, it is something really and eternally good. The best thing that could ever happen in and to this world. Let me help us get our arms around that. Imagine you were out and about and you fell from a high place and hit the ground hard. As you try to pick yourself up, you're bleeding. Maybe you're even hobbling around. But instead of getting it looked at, especially if you're a guy, but instead of getting it looked at, instead of re receiving treatment and therapy, you try to clean it out, you bandage it up, and you walk on it yourself. Days go by. Weeks, maybe. And clearly, you're not walking right. It gets harder for you to focus and function because you're distracted by the growing pain in your body and you're out of balance because you're favoring your damaged leg. And even though it gets so bad, you just continue to ignore it until you pass out. And then you wake up horizontal on a table in a bright room with odd sounds and weird smells. There are tubes going into your arms and legs. A masked man in green hovers over you. Sharp objects are on a table next to you. You see blood. You realize that you've been cut open or you're about to be. Are you surprised? Yeah. Are you scared? I think so. Does it hurt? Probably. At first glance, you might be convinced you're being tortured. You are going to die. But later on, when you're healed, when you feel whole, free of pain and suffering, 
No longer walking with a limp and out of balance, your leg and body feeling brand new, you realize something really good, completely necessary, just happened. That's the framework for the day of the Lord. I mean, beloved, doesn't it strike us as odd what we perpetuate? Doesn't it strike us as odd, this idea that we perpetuate, that God would completely annihilate the world he created, this world which he himself once called very good? I mean, if you, th if you think of other places in Scripture, what comes to my mind is when Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, he talks about creation being in bondage to decay. He describes creation being set free from its bondage, not obliterated. Well, you might say, well, wait a second. We might argue, Pastor Chris, didn't God already destroy the world once, though, with the flood? And that's a great question. And if you have those Bibles open, you'll remember Peter addresses this earlier on in this chapter, near the end of the letter. He brings this up, too. But his point, on, his point earlier was that the waters of the flood did not annihilate the earth. They purged the earth. And as he looks ahead to the day of the Lord, he describes that in the same way, the fire of the day of the Lord will not eradicate all the earth. It will purify and purge the planet. Beloved, what we are getting set for is not as the world burns. We're not getting set for as the world burns out and fades away. As Peter describes it here, he says it this way, we're getting set for a new heaven, a new earth, where righteousness dwells, the home of righteousness. We're getting ready for the complete purging of all evil. We're getting set for all suffering, all disease, all brokenness to be wiped away for the total supernatural transformation of the universe. Our expectation shouldn't be for the end of the world altogether, but the end of the world as we've known it, as we've lived in it. We're getting set for the final reversal of the curse of sin, death, and the devil, and the making of all things new, the world as our creator intended it to be. And that's not a bleak, chaotic, uncertain, and hopeless vision of the future. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's not the last chapter of the story, but the start of a whole new eternal adventure. Are we getting set, properly set for the day of the Lord? Or are we choosing to emphasize what we've decided to focus on rather than what Jesus, Peter, and John together are calling us to see? Is our posture, is our stance one of optimism and hope? Or is our lack of depth of perception distorting our presentation of God's vision and promise for the future to others? Do we see the, the coming of the day of the Lord as a bleak, nightmarish horror movie? Or as the kind of story where despite all the odds, no matter how dark or bad things look, the truth sets us free. The good guy always wins. The hero remains victorious. Peter calls us to be ready. Peter tells us to get set. And then Peter finishes by telling us to go. Ready, set, go. Too many of us think being ready and set to go is a matter of things that have happened in the past. 
We're ready and set to go because we've done the pre-flight checklist for salvation and eternal life. We're cleared and ready for takeoff when the Lord comes because we got baptized. We were confirmed. We said a prayer at camp. I don't want to make light of any of those things. But the problem is we operate as if, as if, well, since we got the essentials out of the way, we believe there's nothing else of ultimate importance for us to do. But if you listen carefully, if you look down at it, Peter, for Peter, go means to look and move forward, not to look backward. Notice how many times, just in the verses we read, how many times Peter tells us to go forward. Being ready and set to go for Peter is not a matter of having a nice list of past experiences to refer back to. And I'm not trying to take away from the significance of where we've been. It matters. It's significant. But Peter presses that out of where we've been, it is still a matter of watching and working for Jesus right now. He writes, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Peter paints a very clear picture. Being ready and set to go means we're not on the planning committee for the apocalypse. We're actively working as the welcoming committee for the return of Jesus. Actively working to faithfully represent Jesus by serving others in his name. And this means, as Peter describes it, being right in our relationships. Right in our relationships doesn't mean we always have to be right in our relationships. As Peter describes it, being right in our relationships means being blameless, giving no one cause for complaint or injury. It involves being at peace. As Jesus has made, as Jesus has given his peace to us, we must pursue peace with others. We must pursue peace with others. And this is an espe a special call, a distinctive call in the place, places of brokenness in our own communities in the very communities that we're a part of. You need to hear this this morning, church, because and this, I'm, I may be going off on another sermon for another time, but I'm gonna stop here for just for a second. This idea of peacemaking. It's not just for, for big causes out there. Christ has made his peace with us, and if we follow him, he calls us, he desires through us to make peace in the communities in which we are already a part. And that means your marriage, your family, your church, whatever your community is that God has called you to, you are called, if you follow Jesus, to be a peacemaker. And for many of us in the small communities we live, we tend to be more of the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. We all just kind of say, well, somebody else has got to clean that up. If you follow Jesus, Jesus called you. That doesn't mean you have to fix it, but Jesus' purpose is for you to be the means by which he is going to fix it. And so I, I ask us to think about in the very communities we're in, are there places in our communities, the smallness of the communities we're in, where there is a need for peace? And are we making, looking to make peace, seeking peace, praying for peace in those relationships? Being at peace in those places of brokenness means we make peace particularly as followers of Jesus with our rivals, our critics, our enemies. We pursue peace. What does it look like practically, scripturally? We pursue peace by always making the first step towards the other person. We don't stand behind a line and say, no, 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 they gotta come to me. We follow Jesus, we follow Jesus to them. We make peace by persistently seeking the high road. 
Not by saying, you know what? I sought the high road enough. Now guess what? I'm taking the low. We always are seeking the high road in Christ. And seeking peace in Christ means we are willing. And even if that means we're praying for God to give us the will, we are willing to forgive even when a wrong is not acknowledged. Even when an apology is not even offered by the other person. You see, there is good work Hard work, work that we don't have to do in our own strength and in our own power, thank God, because it would not be possible. But there is work for us to do as we wait, as we are ready and set to go as we wait for Jesus to return. Peter goes on, therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall away from your secure position. For Peter, being ready and set to go means being forewarned. You heard it. He spent a huge chunk of this letter, we've been in it together, cautioning us against half-truths, pretenders, and just outright lies when it comes to what we are told and what we believe about Jesus and his kingdom. Being forewarned ought to lead us to be forearmed, being on guard. If you will, think of it like defensive driving. My daughter has just gotten her license. My son is in the early stages of getting his permit, so I'm in this world. You've all heard that expression of defensive driving, right? We need to drive cautiously and carefully, not necessarily because we are reckless, but because we need to assume everyone else driving around us is. And, rec and defensive driving means that we need to be vigilant and paying attention to our surroundings. We need to evaluate traffic conditions, testing the directions that we get, the wisdom of the day, the truth of the moment. We fall away, as Peter writes, from our secure position when we stop being dependent upon Jesus. We get carried away, as Peter writes, when we convince ourselves or let others manipulate us into believing we are in control. We are self-sufficient. We can handle things on our own. We're behind the wheel of our own lives. And that we don't need to look, we don't need to listen, we don't need to follow Jesus. Forgive me for getting all Carrie Underwood on you right now. But is Jesus at the wheel of your life? Who or what is driving you? Who or what is driving you? Where are you getting your directions from? What is your internal GPS? Are we sticking to the way, the truth, and the life of Christ, or are we going off-road, trying to blaze our own trail? That's so popular, so sexy right now. Blaze your own trail. And in blazing our own trail, are we headed nowhere fast? Peter presses on, no, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you, know, do you love this? Peter ends his letter where he started. Being ready, getting set, and going means being proactive in our faith. Growth. But Peter isn't talking about growth, once again, in terms of information. Many of us, many of us here have grown in knowledge by shoving Bible truths into our minds. Some of you here today, I don't care what your age is, you could probably outquote scripture to me right now. But Peter is not just telling us to shove Bible truths into our minds. He's saying to grow in grace and knowledge. And growing in grace means that we don't just shove Bible truths into our minds. We show Bible truths through our lives. You can quote scripture to me. You know a lot about the Bible. But what does it look like 
in your life. People aren't reading the scriptures first. They're reading you. You are the gateway to people entering into the word of God. We are the gateway. They're not reading scripture first. They're reading you. Are they reading the word of the Lord? Or are they reading something else? Growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, in other words, is maturing in our relationship with Christ. We have this habit, right? Of, we have this habit of asking our children. At some point or another, you sit around with a kid, you'll get to this question. You have this habit of, you know, it's like with the default. We ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? What do you want to be when you grow up? And what's interesting is somewhere along the way, and there's not necessarily a defined, like a, a group consensus on this, but somewhere along the way, we stop asking someone, a kid, this question. Why? Well, because we've either decided or they've proven they've grown up. But my friends, though this seems really innocuous, not a big deal, this is a false premise. This is, to me, a very tangible example of one of the lies we need to be armed against. Because biblically, there's no such thing as a grown-up. Biblically, there's no such thing as a grown-up. Remember the kind of event we're getting ready with with Jesus' return? Going back there, do you remember the kind of event we're getting ready with with Jesus' return? Being ready for Christ's return means there's no point in this journey of faith at which anyone can say, I've done everything I need to do to be ready. My preparation is complete. No matter how young or how old you are, no matter where you've been or what you've been through, until Jesus comes, takes us home or comes back, it ain't over till it's over. I've said this many, many times, but it's a perfect opportunity to repeat it. And for some of you, you're going to say amen, especially if you're on the younger side. And those of you who are older are going to glare at me. But hear the word of the Lord. There is no retirement in the kingdom of heaven. I'm, enjoy, if, for those of you who are retired and for those of you who are looking forward to it, enjoy your retirement in this life while you have it. But do not kid yourself that somehow when Jesus returns or calls you home, that you're going to stand before him, and when he desires to put you to work, you're going to go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm retired. I worked for 50 years. I thought I was going to be hanging out on a cloud playing a harp. There is no retirement in the kingdom of heaven. We're never finished. We're never perfect. We're never done growing up until Jesus brings us home or comes back. And so hear about the implications of this. By the word and the spirit, if we're to continually develop, if we're supposed to constantly develop and mature spiritually, if that's the truth, then the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, is the right question, the best question to ask at every stage of life. So whoever you are this morning, however old you are, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be? And in case you're starting to think, Coming up with your own answers, let me let you in on a little secret. The answer is the same for all of us. What do you want to be when you grow up? We're growing up to be like Jesus. That's what we're growing up to be like Jesus. Are you getting to know Jesus? Are you learning? All your age, regardless of whether you think you're young or old, wherever you find yourself, are you learning to be like Jesus? To live like Jesus? That's what this is all about. Do you think about, 
are you at a place where you're better understanding how Jesus would live your life? How Jesus would face and endure what you face? How Jesus would engage your relationships? How Jesus would meet the opportunities before you? How Jesus would meet the challenges you are facing? What do we want to be when we grow up? We want to be more like Jesus. And again, we're not doing that. We're submitting, we're yielding to that work by word and spirit that God is doing in us. And if we want to know if we're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, Peter offers us the benchmark for this with the last line of his letter. If we want to know we're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, we'll be giving glory to God. We will be waiting for Jesus to return with perseverance through a continual life of worship. A continual life of worship. That doesn't mean we show up every Sunday at 10.30. A continual life of worship. And for those of us who are on the older side, and you know I've confessed to you, you're like my therapist, my mental health uh, crisis is I'm becoming middle-aged. I'm becoming more and more aware that my body doesn't and can't do what it used to be able to do. That my mind doesn't operate the way that it used to, that I forget things. I call Hannah Kim. Even though I know that's not Kim, that's what comes out of my mouth. I'm more and more aware that my feelings that once I was so on top of I could control find their ways of just leaking out of me, and I'm cleaning up all the time. So if you can relate to that, and those of you who are younger, you will. When I say that we are to wait with perseverance through a continued life of worship, that is not just pie in the sky. What I am saying to you, and I don't, I may, who I'm speaking to this morning, if your body is failing, worship by offering the Lord the thoughts and insights of your mind. And if your mind is slipping, lift up the song and joy in your heart. And if your heart is heavy, Pour out and give generously from the love you have received. But beloved, the key is we must worship. We are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ when we worship, when we glorify God with all that we have, with all that we are until our very last breath. My friends, the coming of Jesus is not something we ought to wait to take seriously until the day of the Lord is banging down the door. We must be ready for Jesus' inevitable return by continuing to prepare to anticipate his arrival. But we aren't dreading the end of the world. We're expectant of a new heavens and a new earth, a house with many rooms that Jesus is preparing for us all. The timing of the kingdom's coming, the outworking of Jesus' reconciliation, transformation of this world is God's work alone. But being ready and getting set, we can go towards it. Growing and maturing as we move toward, as we point to the coming kingdom. One cannot make the tide come in any faster. But one can move down the beach towards the waves. Moving toward the kingdom is the work of blameless, peaceful service to others. It's this cautious and careful witness of love towards all. 
It's persistent growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ through perseverance in a lifestyle of worship. It is, if you will, what has been on the front of the bulletin as we've gone through this sermon series. It is being a graceful witness by walking by faith in a broken world. Being ready, set, and going is a one-day-at-a-time experience of becoming like Jesus as in the word and by the spirit, we are blessed to touch and heal the soul of another person, to support and encourage and see a life turned around, to mend a shattered heart, to see a broken relationship healed, and through it all, whatever it is, in word or deed, giving glory to God in Jesus Christ. Amen.